is Acts 21. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 36. Uh, we've got these Bibles here at the church that are in the pew racks in front of you. Uh, these Bibles are free for the taking. So if you need a Bible or you know someone who needs a Bible, this is our gift to you. You can take this, take it home with you. Don't look back. Okay, this is, this is our gift to you. Uh, so we'll be looking at Acts 21, verses 17 through 36. This is page 1693 in that pew Bible. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from a province of Asia saw Paul at this temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. Then the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound in two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. Thanks, Luke. Hey, High Point, how you guys doing? We are, um, we're doing a series right now called Unsinkable Faith out of the last eight chapters of Acts in which we're talking about how to have an unsinkable faith, ironically enough. And there's about seven things that come out of those eight chapters that we're going over for seven weeks. And <clears throat> one of the ways in which life and life in Christ is similar to things nautical, is that we all hope things are going to go great. And I hope your life goes great. Listen, I, I hope that for your whole life there is, a, there is a shrimp on the Barbie, and there is the sun in your face, and the, the opposite sex adores you, and you get promoted, and, you know, whatever. I, I mean, I really hope that for every day of your life. And you, you, you wake up refreshed at 5, and you're not tired till 2 a.m., and like— they don't cancel your favorite show and all that, okay? Um, but that is just not really how life works, and the reality is, is that you're going to be out on the season. No matter what you hoped that was going to be like, um, it may go a different way, and all of us are going to face rough seas. You, do, you don't know what's going to happen out there, and the big question is not whether or not you're going to be comfortable. The question is whether or not you're going to sink. 
And if you don't sink, are you going to be strong enough and are you going to be ready and is your faith going to be unsinkable enough that you're going to be actu actually be able to help anybody else who is sinking? Because the reality is, is that there's lots of other people that are not ready for what they're going to face in their life. They're not ready right this minute. In fact, there's people in this room right now that would, could personally identify with that if you let yourself be vulnerable enough, that you are just not prepared for the life you have right now. Your faith is not prepared for what you're facing and you need someone to help carry you and you need to have an unsinkable faith. And so if, you, if we go back to the last three weeks, what we said was, one, the very, very first thing in having an unsinkable faith is realizing that God is with you. If you believe in Jesus, God is with you, and you need to not give up. You need to get giving up off the table. Every moment of your life is going to seem like a great moment to give up. And every moment of your life is a great moment to say, I'm going to give up tomorrow. It's, it's a moment not to give up. And if you believe that God is with you, which the Bible says everywhere if you believe in Jesus, that God is with you, then you cannot give up. And the second week, we talked about the Holy Spirit, how you need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's personal, divine, empowering, and enabling and presence that comes with Christian salvation. When you turn to Jesus and you let go of your sin and your self-will and your rejection of his kingliness, and you say, you're right, I'm wrong, I accept that Jesus died for me, you not only get forgiveness and internal personal spiritual transformation called regeneration, you also receive God's personal presence in the person of the Holy Spirit, and you need the Holy Spirit. And then last week, Lloyd talked about opposition to the gospel, and he, and he basically said, listen, you need to stick with the gospel even in the midst of opposition. Every generation says, that this Christian thing will not make it into the next century. Every generation has said that. Every people in every continent of the world have said that. And I know some people say the 21st century or the 22nd century will be like every other century and Christian faith will make it into it. Christian faith will not make it into the next century because the next century will be like every other century. It won't be. The next hundred years will be very different than many of the centuries that came before it. That's not why Christianity will make it into the next century. It'll make it in the next century because the Christianity is the same. It's the same risen Christ. It is the same gospel. It is the same message of reconciliation. The same God created it and stands behind it. And whatever happens in the next hundred years, which will be in many ways different than all centuries before us, the gospel is up for it. It is the sort of vessel that was made for opposition. There, I don't know if you know much about boats, but there are some boats that really look terrible in flat seas. You're kind of like, who built that thing? That looks idiotic. It's not until the thing is in 50-foot seas where you're like, oh, that's why. And the gospel is one of those things. When everything's peachy for you, you're kind of like, why is it built like this? The gospel is built to work just as well in one-foot seas and 50-foot seas. And so the boat looks a little weird. And you should learn to accept that because you're going to end up in 50-foot season. You're going to be real glad for it. Today, what I want to talk about is the, the fourth step for us to, to believe in Jesus in such a way as to have an unshakable faith is we need, to, we need to learn to work for peace through sacrifice. That peace and unity are incredibly important, much more important than most of us think they are in every area of our life. And that it is unity that is one of the great things that makes for buoyancy if you don't want to sink. Unity makes buoyancy. One of the ways that's true is that if— one of the things I learned early on in my boat buying career was that structural integrity is one of the first things that you need to look at when it comes to, to a boat. The unity of all the parts, assuming it's rightly engineered, actually all adhering well together and not coming apart is incredibly important. The boat needs to be unified. A solid boat is a floating boat. I went, when I was in Florida, I went to buy my first boat with my friend Jack McDougall, who had bought and sold probably 15,000. I mean, obviously that's an exaggeration, but a lot of boats. And it was the right size. It was the right width. It was the right hull. It was the right everything that I wanted, and it was very inexpensive, and I was like, come look at this boat with me because I've never purchased a boat before. He looked at the boat for literally seven seconds. I mean, we walked up to it, and he goes, mm-hmm, and I knew that was the, I've already made my decision, mm-hmm, right? And I was like, what? Because I know that means no if he's looked at it for seven seconds, right? I was like, what? He's like, look. And I, I had no idea what he's looking at, and he, he had to actually get me close to the boat. The whole transom, which is the back of the boat, like the most important part, had all been refibered glassed. So something had torn off the whole transom, and they'd like refiberglassed a new one on. He's like, yeah, you, you don't want a boat with a newly fiberglassed transom, and you don't know who did the work, and you just don't want that. And I would never have known that. I would have never known that there, it didn't have the structural integrity that it needed. And one of the things that we don't think about is that when we, you and I go through life, 
we are, we are on, we are all being carried by lots of different cultural vessels that keep us safe and that carry us along. And the cultural structural integrity of those vessels is a critical part of you not sinking. And there's lots of different ones, and those different vessels carry you through different sets of problems. And there are four different things. But the human family is a vessel, your immediate family and in the extended family. That is something that carries you. It supplies, it protects, it nurtures, it does things for you, and you do things for it. It's like a vessel that carries you through problems. Neighborhoods are supposed to be like that. Neighborhoods that, where people are kind of bound together and, you know, I, I snowblow my older neighbor's driveway. He watches my house when I'm gone. My daughter walks another neighbor's dog because she has some issues with her ambulance. I, I put out a fire in one of my neighbor's houses. You know, they buy vegetables for my girl's garden in the summertime. And we all do things for each other. And we look out for each other and we take care of each other, right? And, and my, most of my neighbors hate me. We still do that because— because that's, what, that's, what that's how a neighborhood functions, because it's a vessel. We keep each other safe together. We supply for each other's little needs together. We're, we're there for each other in case, you know, there's a fire and so on, right? And the state is like that, right? I have people complain all, all the time about how the government is terrible and Congress's approval rating is like 18%. Listen, when was the last time we got invaded? I'm just saying. Right? In your lifetime, in my lifetime, we have not been invaded. Now, it depends on where you put the bar for how well the government's doing. Uh, we're doing great. Now, you go back to like Serbian, you know, Serbians that were attacked by Mongols like in the Middle Ages, and you're like, and, 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 and we, were, we complained about our government to them. They'd be like, they would like stab us. You know what I mean? It just depends on what you expect. You know what I'm saying? And there's certain things in which we, we don't have to think about. I mean, have you, when was the last time you thought about your foreign policy with Russia? You don't have to do that. Somebody's doing that for you. Whether or not they're doing a good job. Do you understand? So there's—all these things are different vessels. And when those vessels of culture and society and church and family are healthy, when they hold their structural integrity in unity, then most of us can be at ease, and the weak that would otherwise perish are taken care of. But when they fail— when their structural integrity is compromised, we break up into smaller pressured groups that tend to fight with each other, and the weak tend to drown. Because they literally depend on these vessels for their life. When it comes to all structures, Jesus has said that the church of Jesus Christ should live for the good and the peace and prosperity of all of those structures, and that we should be peacemakers and unity creators in all of them. So I'm going to talk a decent bit this morning about that we as a church should seek spiritual unity. But when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, he was not talking about the church. He was talking about all of human society. And so people who, who are in economics— and make buying and selling deals and structure companies and restructure them to provide goods and services for other people are, are creating an economic vessel that you depend on. You'd be like, well, I don't, I don't like some of those corporations work. Yeah? Well, you trust it. You trust the economic vessel enough that the average person has three days' worth of food and two days' worth of water in their house on hand. That's how much you depend on and rely on and believe in the economic vessel. And the people around you and you yourself who work in commerce— you are upholding that vessel, and that is, so you're supposed to make peace and build it for the peace and prosperity of the, of the whole city and all people with providing the service and making a profit in mind. And people in government are doing the same thing. And to the extent to which they're Christians, they should be seeking the peace and prosperity. They should be unity creators and peacemakers among all people in all these— and, even, and whether it's that or whether it's you doing something about the gossiping that's happening at a water cooler or the way one family member is treating another family member. It doesn't matter what vessel or what sphere or what area it's in. But if you and I are fulfilling what it means to be a Christian, we are following the great peacemaker. We believe in and have been remade by the great reconciler. And we are sons and daughters of God. And we demonstrate that by being peacemakers in all spheres and in all areas of human life. But 
that certainly is not least true of the church. The church is God's specifically created vessel for the faith and the faithful. If you're a Christian, you inhabit this vessel, and it is the thing that is supposed to come around you and that you're supposed to be part of, and it is the vessel that makes your faith unsinkable. Your faith is not unsinkable by yourself. It becomes unsinkable as God brings you together with another community. And in places where there is no church, people dramatically struggle in faith. High Point was approached by um, a town in northern Wisconsin just recently by some people there who are Christians, and they said, we just, we don't have a church that believes the gospel. We want to lead people to faith. We want to encourage people in the faith, but there's, there's nowhere for them to go in this town. Would you guys be involved in planning a church up here? We know a number of places, not that far from here, where people have to drive 40 or 50 minutes to be at a church that actually preaches the, preaches the gospel, encourages people and exhorts people to have faith and to follow Jesus in real time, in real life, right now with real neighbors, encourages them to actually share the gospel with others, and does some of the most basic things in the Bible. And yours and my faith it should be dramatically connected to the health of the vessel of the church universal, but namely in the local church with other human beings. It's one of the reasons why you should not be going to church online unless your immune system is compromised or like you're a shut-in or something. It's one of the reasons why you should be at a church with real humans, preferably those you don't like. Right? And it's one of the reasons why you should believe that the unity and the peace of the church should be something you're willing to work for and fight for. One of the things that people don't seem to understand sometimes is that vessels don't sink all at once. That's not really the way it works. Do you remember the last vessel that was supposedly unsinkable? Right? We all know its name. That's the one ship we all know its name. Right? There's not a lot of boats in the world that have ever existed that we all know its name, right? I mean, Jason the Argonauts, what was that, what was that boat called, right? I mean, I know pr the Dawn Treader and the Titanic, right? And yet, when you, when you, you look at the story of how the Titanic sunk, it was just a number of things that kind of happened. It hit the iceberg. Most of the people reported that they didn't think there was anything wrong when that happened. They heard a little boom, and then another little boom. Didn't sound like that big a deal. They were on an unsinkable ship, but it was enough to fill the five front cabins. It created a nine-degree list, which was enough to flood the front, the front deck, which was enough to push the water back a little further, which compressed one of the—and it just a little step after a little step after a little step, and two hours later, it was going down— and then it stood up, and then it split. And you see, you and I believe that the vessels in our life are just going to be fine. This is how people end up in refugee camps. This is how people end up slaughtered in the tens of millions by their governments, which happened a number of times in the last century. This is, this is what people, human beings, just believe and take things for granted. The sun just keeps coming up and going down, and so they think they'll be at peace tomorrow. They think their marriage is going to be fine. They think their kids are just going to grow up and be okay. They just, they don't think that the natural, most basic, most central vessels of their life require them fighting for them every day. But yet they do. The vessels in your life require enormous vigilance if they're not going to sink. Every one of them. None of them can be taken for granted. They're all gifts of God, but God does not guarantee that they will ma maintain themselves, and we know from the entire history of humanity that they don't. Families do not maintain themselves. Governments do not maintain themselves. Freedoms do not maintain themselves. Economies do not maintain themselves. Banks don't maintain themselves. Schools don't maintain themselves. Nothing maintains itself. And if you don't recognize how every vessel that carries you requires you to fight for its unity and integrity, if you don't realize that you participate in every moment in the structural integrity of the vessel that is carrying your life, 
in the seas of what happens around you, you'll be the kind of person that feels a little bump and thinks everything's fine. And you will not provide for yourselves the kind of leadership that you need, nor will you yourselves fight for the kind of unity that is required to hold the structural integrity of the very vessel that carries your life and that provides safety for the weakest among us. So, if, you, if we understand that, one of the things that we'll recognize is that we have to work for unity, and we have to do it through sacrifice. Unity is not free, and unity does not just happen, and unity just does not grow itself. There's two things that we'll talk about this morning, and that's because I'm not going to spend time talking about prudential wisdom. The third point would be prudential wisdom, and we're going to put a blog up later on that on Engage and Equip that you can look at. It's hbcmadison.com if you want to have a look at that. The first is, is that we have to first understand that working for unity is as important as fighting for purity. Working for unity is as important as fighting for purity. Because people go to churches like High Point. I mean, High Point is a certain kind of church, okay? We, we're, we're the kind of—High Point's the kind of church like, we, we believe in Jesus. We believe in the Bible. We believe in the gospel. We're not moving. We don't care how much our culture disapproves of us. I mean, that's—if you've been around a while, you, you know, that's how it is. And, I, and a, a lot of people recognize that— um, you have to really be careful about upholding the truth because everybody is always engaging in special pleading against it. Right? And since Christian faith puts forward truth in, in all areas of life because God created all areas of life, everybody's special pleading on some corner of it all the time. Right? The, right? the young, right? They're always special pleading for fornication. Right? It's just the young are gonna, they're gonna special plead for sex. Just, I wanna do what we want, the rest of Christianity is fine. The old, are always going to special plead that the, these problems are not their fault, and these young people they did not create, right? And they don't have to stay in the game, right? And you can go through husbands, wives, children, parents, Democrats, Republicans. You just go through all the different kinds of people that they are, and everybody's going to special plead for something that they think they should get some space on when it comes to Christian faith. And nobody wants to be the bad guy all the time, right? That's why nobody wants to be a parent anymore, right? Where, where somebody's like, well, come on, look, give me a little space, give me a little more, give me a little, give me a little, come on, come on, come on, come on, iPhone, come on, you know, that kind of thing. And nobody wants to be like, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. No. No. Oh, yeah, ask me one more time. No. Because every, every time you get pushed, it, it, like, it, it feels like you're the bad guy. It's like this, this like, prescription of villainy that gets spread on you by some idiotic person that thinks they have the right to do that. And it, it, you just want to give them— and, th and then they go, well, you know, you're at one, and I'm asking for ten. Surely you could be not stingy. Give me three. And nobody wants to hear. Three is as false as ten. Right? It's, I remember there was one writer who said, you know, being in the middle is not always a virtue. If you think you shouldn't kill anybody and somebody else killed 30 million people, killing just 15 million is not necessarily balanced. Right? And so what happens in normal human existence is people slide. They give in to the special pleading over and over and over again. Right? We call this progress. And so, I'm just kidding. That's not true. I'm just, this is a joke. <clears throat> When you give in to righteous pleading and pleading for justice, it's progress. When you give in to special pleading, it's called wickedness. And all of us have to face that all the time, and the gospel faces all the time, because the gospel is always looking at sinners and saying, look, you can't do that stuff. That's not what you were made for. That's not what, that's not what the truth is. You've got you've to come to truth. The truth isn't coming to you, right? But when you get, when those kinds of people, the kind of people like that gather in a church— be careful. Because those kind of people know that you have to fight for truth. You have to fight for purity. 
you have to be on your guard all the time. You have to recognize, you have to be in a position to get pushed around with a special pleading and be ready to say no. And when that's your posture, it is so easy to be the person that doesn't realize that working for unity is just as important as fighting for purity. You could see this in Acts 15 and Acts 21. If you go back to Acts 15, there's this place where the, the non-Jewish peoples are becoming Christians. And there's this huge question of how Jewish do you have to become to become a Christian? And the, the right answer to that is you don't at all. Right? Judaism is the womb. The baby is Christian faith. And the two have something in common, but not— but there is a clear distinction between the two. And so in Acts 15, Paul comes—sorry about that. Paul comes to Jerusalem, and he—he's ready to fight. Because he knows that the Jewish Christians are going to be like, they got to be somewhat Jewish. And Paul is ready to fight, and he's going to be like, no, they don't. Right? And so he gets there, and it actually goes better than maybe he thought it was going to go. I don't know. But they, they sort it out, and they realize that we're going to have Jewish Christians. We're going to have Gentile Christians. The Gentile Christians are not going to become Jews. But there's four things from the Jewish law that they need to make sure they do. Sexual immorality is still not okay. Right? The meat of strangled animals, I'm not going to get into why that is now. Right? And some other things. But that's it. In Acts 21, Paul shows up. He's the, and so he was ready—he was the fighter for purity in chapter 15. And now he's being asked to do literally the opposite. He comes back and he says, listen, all these Gentiles have become Christians in, in two different continents. And all the Jewish Christians are like, that is so awesome. And they said, but look in Jerusalem. Thousands of Jews have become Christians. And they love being Jewish. And the problem is, is that the Jewish Christians are asking, how much of Judaism can we keep? And the Gentiles are saying, how much of Judaism can we leave? And these are now part of the same family. And here's the thing that's crazy. People love their culture. And so now these guys are stuck between these two poles where the Jewish Christians want to know how Jewish they can be. The Gentiles want to know how not Jewish they can be. And everybody knows that in other places where Jews aren't the majority, the Jews and the Gentiles are going to the same churches. You know what's happening in those churches? Jewish sons are marrying Gentile daughters. And, and so forth. And there is a—the Jews are the minority. And so whenever you have a minority culture and a majority culture within this new society, what starts to go away? The minority culture. And so the Jews are looking out and they're seeing outside of their enclave that this Paul who doesn't insist on Jews, Gentiles becoming Jews— Ultimately, what that's going to mean is, is it's going to destroy our cultural identity. You're going to get rid of us, right? And there's a whole lot more going on there. But ultimately, the intricacies of gospel and law and Judaism and, and freedom and all those things is more complicated than the standard urban crowd is ready to sort through. And James knows is that there's a huge unity problem at stake here. And so he asks Paul to do a symbolic action that demonstrates the validity of Jewish culture in Christian faith without denying the validity of Gentiles not having to become Jews. Which is why he says, do this purification right. And we already sent the Gentiles that letter that said they don't have to become Jews. And we still uphold that. But do this thing to hold the church together and to create unity. And he does it. And if you go into a university library and you get the commentaries written by people who don't really believe the Bible's message, almost all of them say Acts 21 could not have happened. Or they'll say Acts 15 and Acts 21 could not have happened. Because it's not the same Paul. It is the same Paul. It is the same Paul that knew in his bones that working for unity is just as important as fighting for purity. And so the same Paul that could show up in Acts 15 and say, it has to be right. The Gentiles have to be free. It is Christ and Christ alone is the same guy that could show up in 21 and fight just as hard for unity. 
And part of the reason for that is you see this everywhere in the Bible. And here's the funny thing about it. You usually see the call to purity and the call for unity right next to each other. The same verse that says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. The very next verse says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That is, they are not bendable to people who want to make them back down on the truth. For, they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, which is it? It's both, right? Or in James 3, 16 to 18, this is a great one. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You'll lose unity and you'll lose the truth. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. So purity is first, right? But then he just says that, and then what does he spend his time on? Then, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So he works out with seven different disciplines how the wisdom of heaven produces and fights for and works for unity. Though he makes clear that purity comes first. Why? Because purity comes first. And if you believe that, you're very prone not to be humble and submissive and merciful and long-suffering with other people to produce as much unity as you possibly can while still submitting to the truth. In John 13 and John 17, Jesus explicitly says that it is the amount of unity through love that we have in the local church with one another that demonstrates to the watching world whether or not God sent Jesus and whether or not he even loves the world. Now you might say, well, he says the church, Nick, that's going to be the universal church. Here's the problem. Discrete and individual non-Christian humans cannot see the universal church. They can only see local churches. So let's not play philosophical games with this one. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then a couple chapters later, in a very similar vein, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. That is his disciples that are alive right then. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's a lot of oneness right there. May they also be in us so that the world may believe. Note that so that clause. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I give them, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to, that's a purpose to, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, both of those sections are claiming that the entire purpose of the church in persuading the watching world that God has sent the Son, Jesus the Christ, to redeem all people from their sins, to draw them into union with God, and to actually create unity and reconciliation between humans and with humans and God is entirely dependent on how much love people see between us and how much practical peace and unity really exists, not on the basis of their, our doctrinal purity. Is it because our doctrinal purity is important? No, it's because the watching world doesn't have a cue what doc, clue what doctrinal purity should look like. The, the non-Christians are going to look at us and be like, well, I don't know if you've got your Christology right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's faithful to Nicaea, but probably not Chalcedon. I mean, they don't, they don't care about that. They don't know anything about it. They're never going to look at us and be like, your doctrine's wrong. But without the gospel, without any biblical knowledge, they can look at us and know whether or not there is peace and unity and tranquility among us, and whether there is a vessel that can carry people and can make faith unsinkable. <clears throat> Ephesians 4. This is, this is Paul, right? He says, For as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you. So he's already in prison for this, which he did for unity's sake, not truth's sake, right? He said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What's that? What's living worthy look like? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Why? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why does that make sense, and why is that explicitly related to our new identity that comes from believing in Jesus? Why? Because there is one body, that is the body of Christ, one body, 
one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he says, look at, if you look at your identity and what it's made up of, it is the exact same for every single one of you. If you really believe that, and if your identity is in those things and not other things, then what should naturally be produced is unity. You really don't have that much to fight about. And the things you fight about, to the extent to which they move in on those things, aren't worth it. It means that your priorities are screwed up. You don't know what's important, more important than other things. Right? It's like when my oldest daughters fight with each other. It's because they believe that a pair of pants and whose it is and did somebody fold it right is more important than their sisterhood. Right? It's a, it's a values problem. And it demonstrates that you don't know who and what you are when you have certain kinds of disputes. There are a couple of parents that like that illustration. That was great. <clears throat> In Hebrews, very similar passage. Do you, do you notice here the standard? The standard here is make every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Oops, wrong way. Make every effort to live in peace with all men. That's not just the church. That's the whole world. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. That's going to keep us busy for a while, right? Live in peace with everybody outside of you and strive to be holy personally, just like Jesus yourself. We're going we're gonna to beat that one for a while, right? For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, th now think about that for a second. See what saying? You need to make every effort for there to be a unity of the Spirit and to create peace. Why? Because what happens to people outside and inside the body of Christ if you don't do that? If you and I don't do that, then people outside of the, the body of Christ are not going to see that the fundamental work of God is gracious and generous, that he wants to save and redeem and reconcile. And so people will miss the grace of God. You see, that's exactly what the verse says. If you don't do that, the result will be, if you don't strive for personal holiness and in relationship with others, the peace, then other people, when they look and they will miss the grace of God, they won't see it. They'll miss out on the very thing that God is trying to communicate through who we are together. And what will happen to people inside the church? All of our wounding of each other won't get healed. If we're not humble and submissive and loving and caring and gentle with one another, and if <clears throat> we can't rebuke and be rebuked, and if we can't say, hey, that really hurt me, and what's going on with this, and I feel like you've left me, and what about this? And, and if we can't do that because nobody's humble and gentle enough in spirit, nobody's seeking of unity enough, nobody cares whether or not there's a wound because that wound is a breach in the structural integrity of who we are together, and we should care about that because when those cabins flood, everything lists. What happens is, is that there are people in this room right now where bitterness is growing in them. You can't see it above the ground, but there's a twisted root deepening out of their soul and thickening and destroying and defiling their spirituality and their relationship with everybody because they, they haven't been able to get it out and none of them, nobody's drawn it out of them. And so it hasn't been snapped and dug out and broken off and poisoned with its own poison. And so it festers and grows and inside the body of Christ, among us, in marriages and between people and in friendship relationships and within ministries and between ministries and between staff members and between staff and elders and between new people who visited and people who've been here for a while and different generations and between services and between worship teams and bitter roots can grow. And do you see how all of that relates directly back to how passionately we believe in personal holiness and the bond of peace? And making every effort, every effort to live in peace with all people. Romans 12, it, it tightens the noose a little more. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's a bit of a theme, right? Every effort, every effort, everyone. 
Working for unity is just as important as fighting for purity. Should we fight for purity? Absolutely. Can we have unity without purity? It's not worth having. Do we want one of these paltry, based-on-nothing, gospel-losing unities? I, I have no interest in that. But I do not want to have a conversation with Jesus after a life of fighting for purity, even in his name, if I have not seen that working for unity is just as important. In the church, as a first principle, and then among all people, in all vocations. The last is working for unity requires brave sacrifice. One of the things that we need to recognize is that um, unity always has a cost, because forgiveness always has a cost. Uh, forgiveness is an act where the, where the hurt person pays the cost of freedom. That's why forgiveness is such a great thing. That's why you should not indulge people who humiliate forgiveness. It is an act of self-sacrifice in which the injured person bears the cost of bringing freedom to the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim. And when a victim has the strength and the bravery and the character and the capacity to do that with a truly repentant perpetrator, it produces life. If you come to my house and you like break some lamp or something, and you're like, oh, and I say, don't worry about it. What just happened? Our relationship wasn't broken because of your carelessness, but what does that mean? It means I'm buying the new lamp, right? Not you. So it's okay because I'm going to pay the price for what you did. Does that make sense? That's what forgiveness is, and that is the way all unity is actually created, not just forgiveness unity. In every case, someone has to be the big person. Somebody has to personally take the risk of entering into a situation of vulnerability because there's two sides with guns aimed at each other, and you're going to walk out in the middle of that. That's essentially what you do when you work to create unity, and everybody's got an itchy trigger finger. And whenever you work for—see, when you work for purity, it's different. It's combative, but it's different because you know the people behind you aren't going to shoot you, right? You know the people in front of you might shoot at you, but you know which team you're on, and they all know what team you're on. The minute you work for unity, you get shot from both sides. Both sides will come to hate you. Both sides will misjudge you. Both sides won't listen to what you're saying. Both sides will assume you're really on the other side. And people on both sides will take advantage of the vulnerability of working for peace to destroy you for their purposes. And that's why we don't work for unity because we're going to win. We work for unity because we follow the Jesus who laid his life down and himself died to purchase unity for anyone who would accept it. Think about this. The Apostle Paul goes to this purification rite. Now, if you read the rest of Acts, do you know how, do you know what the first part of chapter 21 says? Go back, go back this afternoon and read the first chapter. You know what happens in it? He's on his way to Jerusalem and he has, there's two prophetic events where somebody full of the Holy Spirit prophesies over Paul and says, you're going to get killed. Right? One, it says, it says, by the Spirit, they, the, this prophet prophesied, don't go to Jerusalem. And it literally says, it was by the Spirit telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then he decided to go anyway, and they said, the Lord's will be done. That's a very interesting passage to try to interpret. Then this other guy named Agabus, that they name by name, actually takes off a belt, wraps it around his, his arms, or no, takes Paul's belt, wraps it around his arms, and says, the person who wears this belt is going to get bound like this by the Gentiles for going to Jerusalem. And Paul goes, I know. When Paul took the purification rite, he made himself a sitting duck. He put a time and a date and a spot on where he was going to be so that you could attack him. <laughs> you, think, you think about that. He wasn't hiding in some upper room somewhere talking to some Christians that had gathered in private. He said publicly a week beforehand, I will be at this place at this time doing this thing. And was, a, was right in the middle of everything so that he could be attacked. 
And some people have said, this is just, Paul should have never done this. He compromised purity for this unity and actually backfired on him. That's not what happened. Because it wasn't Christian Jews that attacked him. It wasn't, it wasn't even Jews from Jerusalem that attacked him. It was Jews that had just come from Ephesus. It says from Asia. And they recognized Trophimus who lived in Ephesus. So these were people who were in the riot about the goddess Artemis that we read about a couple weeks ago. And where they, remember they put a Jewish guy forward to, so the Jews could say, hey, we don't have any part in this. And they shouted that guy down. And so the Jews in Ephesus had taken a hit because of the Christians. Because Gentiles thought the whole Christian thing was a Jewish sect. And so now they were here and these guys were mad. And you can understand why. And so they lied and they attacked Paul. And listen, it was not surprising to him. And you can imagine there was a moment in this where Paul thought he was going to get beaten to death right on the street outside of the temple. And I want you to understand that he did that not to preach the gospel one more time, in the most literal sense, and not to fight for the purity of the doctrine of the gospel. He laid himself out to get beaten to death in front of the temple by a mob of crazy liars because he thought it was necessary to produce the unity of the church. I want you to think about that. Paul fought for a lot of things, and he laid his life on the line for a lot of things. But the most dangerous moment of his life, he was laying himself out for the unity of the church. If you want to, if you want to memorize one passage from a number of these sermons, especially this one, I'd encourage this one because it's all there. It's all there in that, those verses. It judges both of our intrinsic and political ideologies. The perversion of a collectivist vision of life is envy. The perversion of an individualistic life is selfish ambition. Both kinds of ideologies go wrong terribly. And where you have envy, and where you have selfish ambition, you will have the destruction of the social order and disorder, and the personal order in all manners of ungodliness. And if you're willing not to be possessed by whatever the chic ideology of the moment is, whether it's political or academic or economic or media-based or artistic, but if you, if you really want to live and be possessed by and moved by the wisdom that comes from heaven— you'll recognize that first and foremost is the purity of the gospel. Jesus, the Christ, God Almighty, become man, crucified and risen for the sins of all people, so that anyone who repents and believes will be forgiven, justified, regenerate, and filled with the Holy Spirit for the redemption of all people and for the glory of God forever. And then— these seven things. And they will all be difficult to do. In fact, they will all be impossible to do. And so I, I would not encourage you to first and foremost look at those list of seven things and write them on your hand or tattoo them on your inner wrist in Greek so that you look cool. Um, but here's what I think you should do. I think you should look at all those things and you should think about the one who fulfilled them perfectly for you. That's what I think you should do. I think you should look at that and you should say, Jesus is the one who had every perfect right to be a warmonger towards me. It would have been nothing for Jesus to rightly wipe you out for the misuse of your humanity, for the arrogant sinfulness of your choices, for your unwillingness to take your place in creation for what he's called you to be, for the way you've misused your gifts for your own pleasure and not for his glory and against his glory. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. He could have been the great cosmic warmonger. He is, after all, called more than anything in the Bible, the Lord of hosts, which does not mean little pieces of bread you saw in Catholic Church growing up. The hosts are armies. He is the Lord of the armies. And instead, he chose to be peace-loving. He chose to relate to you as a reconciler. He considered you. Not the thing of worthy of most consideration, which is his own eternal and divine glory. Instead, he, he considered you. He considered your need. 
He considered your background and what, what's gone on in your life and what you need and who you are as a human being. And he considered that and he decided to move and act on the basis of that consideration rather than an infinitely more important one himself. And that he therefore submitted his own rights to that consideration of your need and my need to become a human being and to live and die for us. Which, of course, is full of mercy, and everyone he's redeemed is the fullness of his good works. And he was impartial toward you because there are other people that deserve salvation more than you. In fact, there are probably people that you have hurt, and if he was partial to them over you, he would offer them salvation and not you. That if he was partial between human beings, you would likely be left out because you are not the most righteous among your many acquaintances. You're probably not even the most righteous person in your cubicle. And instead of showing partiality to her over you because of what you did to her, he impartially offered salvation to everyone as they require it and need it. And then demanded forgiveness happen between the impartial people. And he is the only being that has ever existed who can be said to have a morally sentient mind about which we could say without immediately bursting out into ironic laughter that he has been sincere in every word and in every action he's ever done. You say what you want, but sincerity is lacking in all of us. So much. Jesus has never uttered an insincere word and never taken a heartbeat lengths of action in an insincere direction toward you or anything else in all of creation. And that is the one who invites you to trust him to enter into the vessel he has created called the church, to work for its unity as strongly as we would ever work for its purity. And not only that, but to be so strengthened by that working for unity that we would go out into all the vessels of the world and to work for their unity and their peace and prosperity for the good of, the, of every human being, no matter how God-denying and church-hating they might be. And you will only be able to do that if you believe that Jesus is that great. And when you see him as the great fulfillment of those seven things, you will long every minute to be filled with the wisdom that comes from heaven. Let's pray. God, please help us to see Jesus as we should to be moved by him as we can be, to trust you in all that you've said, to be people who realize how important it is to work for unity, to know that there are many people whose names we don't even know that require the buoyancy of the vessel of the church just to survive, physically and spiritually. And we pray that you would work in this local church that you would create in us a real vessel that could bear the weight of many and can work for the unity of all people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.